Some time ago, um, in September, when we came together to partly to follow up our Energize weekend, Ron put me on the spot. I'll forgive you, Ron. I'll forgive you. <laughs> he asked me to define my vision for the church. Now, I have to say, I find defining a vision like that very difficult, partly because it's difficult to encapsulate what God is saying in a few words, and partly because it seems to me a very risky and hubristic kind of thing to do. Now, what on earth do I mean by hubristic? Well, hubris is the idea that you can appropriate the power and decisions that really belong to God. And I don't want to be guilty of hubris. Nevertheless, God has given me a real sense of what he wants to say and if that's the vision that he wants me to pass on, I've got to pass it on to you. I said, actually, on that evening that I believe God wants us to put more emphasis on prayer. And if someone asked me the same question today, my vision for the church, I would say that it's that we should be a praying church, a church which really takes prayer seriously. Now, you'd expect me to say that, wouldn't you? I mean, that's the kind of thing, the kind of pious thing a minister is supposed to say. But if we take it seriously, friends, we've got to realize there's a price to pay. Because we will never really understand our need to take prayer seriously unless we understand what I've been banging on about since I came here, really, and that's our need to admit and to discover our brokenness. And I know that when I use that word, a whole number of people get worried. I mean, it's a very negative word, isn't it? But it's nothing new. It's nothing new. You know, um, my propensity for liking old hymns, well, you may not have sung this because people gave up singing this one 60, 70 years ago. But it's foundational to an understanding of the Christian faith. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. That's the spirit that I'm talking about. That's the spirit that we need. And we'll come on to uh, the vision a little bit later on. But let me put it this way. The prophet Jeremiah found himself one day in a very, very sticky, literally sticky situation. He'd been thrown into a cistern, an empty water system, cistern. Normally, it was full of water, uh, when, when he arrived there, it was full of brown, sticky, stinking, horrible mud into which Jeremiah sank. He'd been thrown into this cistern by his enemies. 
in the midst of the last siege of Jerusalem before Nebuchadnezzar and his armies destroyed the city. Well, Jeremiah had a friend, a government official called Ebed-Melech. And Ebed-Melech went to get a rope to pull Jeremiah out of the cistern. But one of the things I like about Ebed-Melech is the fact that he was a very practical man. And he realized that if he simply lowered a rope, Jeremiah would probably catch hold of it and he'd rise a few inches and then his hands would slip down the rope and he'd sink back into the mud. So the prophet had to put the rope under his armpits and tie it round him. But there was another problem. That would really hurt Jeremiah and, 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 and perhaps injure him very badly. So Ebed-Melech went off to get some old clothes. In the authorized version, those of you who are familiar with it, it says he went to get some old cast clouts, some old clothes, and he threw them down to Jeremiah to put them under his armpits so he could draw Jeremiah out of the cistern. Now, supposing at that point, Jeremiah had looked up and seen Ebed-Melech there looking over into the cistern and had said, oh, thank you very much, old chap. You're, you're very, very kind. But you see, I have special powers. Supposing Jeremiah had thought of himself as an ancient version of Spider-Man. I don't need your rope. I don't need anything like that. I can cope on my own. I can climb up out of this cistern using my magnetic hands and feet. He would have been an idiot, wouldn't he? He would have been crazy. The one and only solution to Jeremiah's problem was that rope. And it seems to me that God has dangled in front of us a rope. And it's the rope called prayer. And we've got to grab hold of it and hang on to it for dear life so that he can draw us out of our brokenness into the light and the opportunity that he wants to give us. Now, instead of... Um, giving a, a, a title for this sermon, I've used a quotation, a quotation I came across from an American pastor called Ray Ortland. I'm fond of quoting American pastors. You remember some uh, time ago, I, I quoted R.A. Torrey. Now, R.A. Torrey was um, a tremendous man, evangelist, pastor, um, Christian leader. At the beginning of the last century. He had a, a, a tremendous influence both on the other side and this side of the Atlantic. And you remember that I, I gave you R.A. Torrey's word. He said, genuine revival, genuine revival is never worked up. It's always prayed down. And Ray Ortland says precisely the same kind of thing, only he, of course, belongs very much to today. He serves a non-denominational church in Nashville, in Tennessee. And it seems to me this quotation puts my vision for the church into a nutshell. Prayer is not everything, but everything is by prayer. Prayer is not everything, but everything 
is by prayer. Now, do you remember that wonderful service on July the 22nd? It was wonderful because so many people came forward to testify to what God is doing in their lives that there was no time for me to preach. Really, absolutely the apotheosis of a wonderful service. And during that service, David Goodchild here gave a little mind to explain something essential. He showed that if the vision I have for this church, summed up so neatly in Ray Auckland's words, is to be realized, something has to happen. So we'll repeat the mime. Um, Charles, I'd like you to um, imagine you're holding something. Yes. And throw it to me. Right. Okay? I'll throw it to you. Okay. Now, I can't catch that. Charles just threw me a vision, but I can't catch it because I've got my hands in my pockets. And if I'm going to receive Charles's vision, I have to take my hands out of my pockets. So I can't be passive. I've got to actually do something if I'm going to receive what you've got for me, and then I can catch that vision. Thank you. Okay, let's turn to God's word. We're coming to the end this morning of the short series, background series in 1 Thessalonians, and we're looking at uh, chapter 3 in verses 9 to 13, and the reason I've chosen this passage to sort of wind up the background series is because it focuses on prayer, life-changing, heartwarming, world-shaking prayer. Now, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we're told after the day of Pentecost, the believers did three things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That was their agenda. That was their vision. The, break, the, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, nobody could accuse us of neglecting the apostles' teaching. We've, we've just spent a whole month going through the apostles' teaching. And at the service later on this morning, we shall be breaking bread. What about prayer? The next verse, 43 of Acts 2, tells us that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. God moved in power. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God really, really moved in this congregation? Not so that we could turn around and say, what a wonderful church we have. But so that he could do what he intends to do in the lives of those he's chosen. So, on uh, page 1187, you'll find those verses that... Uh, Janet read to us, 9 to 13 of 1 Thessalonians 3. I want to show you six characteristics of effective prayer, very briefly, six characteristics. First of all, in verse 9, effective prayer is thankful prayer. How, we, how can we thank God enough for you to, in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Now, Paul mentions God twice, and he mentions you twice. He doesn't say anything about himself, even though the whole congregation was brought to Christ by Paul himself. You see, he's a good Calvinist, like the best of us. And he knows that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and draws us in repentance and faith. At best, Paul is just the human instrument. And so instead of bragging about all the things that he's done, he puts his confidence in what God has done. And as we plan for the Alpha course next year, that's what we've got to do.
We don't have to worry about whether it's going to be a success or failure, because as long as we do our best to invite folk, make them feel welcome, then, of course, share the gospel with them, the Holy Spirit will do the rest, because that's the way he does things. Okay, the next four points are all in verse 10. Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So we've seen effective prayer is thankful prayer. Next, we see that effective prayer is constant prayer. Night and day, we pray. When was the last time you lost sleep because you were praying? Now, I'm not suggesting we should deliberately deprive ourselves of sleep. I don't believe Paul meant that. What he meant was that although he was constantly aware of the need of the Thessalonians, he didn't carry it around on his shoulders all the time. Isn't there a a temptation when we have prayer needs constantly to think that they're on our shoulders? No, he shared the problems continually with God because effective prayer engages the heart and mind at all hours of the day and night. When we wake in the wee small hours, maybe our first impulse ought not to be to go down and put the kettle on, but to commend to God the people he's laid on our hearts. So effective prayer is constant prayer. And effective prayer then is earnest prayer. Night and day we pray most earnestly. Now for those who like to know these things, this is a very unusual linguistic expression, a double Greek compound. It has the idea of of, of going above and beyond what you would normally expect. Effective prayer has got to be earnest, not shallow and half-hearted. We've got a mean business. And you know, I'm so thrilled on Thursday evening when I put out, they used to call me Charles the Underestimator uh, in various other places. Uh, And it was wonderful to see the, the circle of chairs having to be expanded and expanded and expanded until we used every chair in the lounge. It was great. It really was. Because we've got a mean business when we pray. There's a wonderful promise in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And the New Living Translation of James chapter 5 and verse 16 gives us this. Wonderful thought. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. Isn't that great? The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. And just in case you say, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a righteous man. I'm, I'm just ordinary. You are righteous if your faith is in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ because he who knew no sin, was made sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are righteous if you are in Christ. Next in verse 10, um, constant prayer, earnest prayer. Then in verse 10, Paul prays that we may see you again. Now, how uh, practical and focused are our prayers. You know, the most effective prayer meeting that I can remember uh, just recently was the one I called last March in um, 
preparation for the mission we had, Gospel Gold for Linfield. There was something about that prayer meeting. Those of you who were there will, will testify to that. We knew we had to pray. We knew what we had to pray for. The question is, how much confidence do we have that God will answer? Now, dear friends, I know that there are people in the congregation this morning with heartaches. I know there are. I'm not going to tell you that God is going to say yes to everything you want. That's not how he works. That's not his agenda. If it was, he would be our servant, we would be his master. And the whole structure of the universe would be turned on its head. But there is a promise in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Those heartaches matter to him. You matter to him. If you don't remember anything else this morning, try and remember that. You matter to God. You are of importance to him. The creator of the universe is aware of what makes us anxious. Our unconverted loved ones, the fear of losing our job, our loved ones who are in hospital, the ones who are drawing close to death. The fact that our eyesight is failing, the outcome of a disciplinary process at work, all those things, all those ordinary, practical, heart-wrenching anxieties, he knows. Now, we, do we really believe that? I believe it because I've experienced his care at every point in my life. It hasn't always been shown in the way I would have expected or hoped, but it has never failed, ever. And then effective prayer is purposeful prayer. You see, Paul had a specific purpose in mind when he prayed for the Thessalonians. He prayed that God would allow him to visit them again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, the word supply is used for mending torn nets and setting broken bones. It's the same word that he uses in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 when he talks about restoring repentant sinners and in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 when he talks about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. I know that verse in Greek because it was the um, it was the motto of my theological college. I ergon diakonias for the work of the ministry. I ergon diakonias. And one wonderful student was showing around a party of visitors around the college. And uh, he came from Lancashire, you know. And he said, I look at that. That's Greek, that is. That's Greek. And it says... I ergon diaconias. It means to urge on the deacons. No, it doesn't. It means for the work of the ministry. Supplying what you need for the work of the ministry. Paul didn't waste his breath in routine, repeated prayers. When he prayed, he had a clearly defined goal in mind. And we see that in verses 11, 12, and 13. He asks for three things. But he knows that each of them is dependent on the will and activity of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, now may our God and Father 
and our Lord Jesus Christ himself clear the way for us to come to you. Paul wanted to get to Thessalonica, but he realized that it was only God who could open the door for him to return there. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be wonderful if our love for each other overflowed? That's what we want to happen, don't we? Of course we do. Well, it's only the Holy Spirit who will engender that kind of love. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each of you. Our prayer has to be submissive and dependent upon what God is doing. And verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Isn't that what we want most of all? Blameless and holy hearts, blameless and holy lives. Well, they're on offer. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is able to sanctify and transform us into the image of Christ. Let me close by quoting from a letter. Reading other people's correspondence is fascinating, isn't it, really? Well, this one was quoted by the man whose words I used right at the beginning, Ray Ortland. You remember what he said, prayer is not everything, but everything is by prayer. The letter was sent to him by a recovering alcoholic in his congregation. This is what he says. Life is so good with God at the center. Now problems turn to solutions. Fear turns into hope. Anger turns to love. I'm free in God and it's the best place to be. I've learned to take risks and face challenges I take no credit for all this. To God be all the glory. He never let me go. He took me from a bitter, unhappy, depressed alcoholic and gave me the wings of eagles, soaring to heights I never dreamed possible. He's given me his words to share with other alcoholics. He's restored my family and he's filled me with his love each day. Friends, if you know anything about what it means to be an alcoholic, you will recognize that those words are incredible, quite literally incredible, impossible to believe. But they're true. Now, if God can do that with a man who is part of a church that really takes prayer seriously, what cannot he do with you and me? Not simply because we want it, because prayer has got to be submissive. I don't believe there is anything that is beyond him. Just as long as we get hold of that rope, hang on to it, and allow him to haul us out of the mud of our brokenness. Just as long as we refuse to let go. Amen.